So Ummu Habiba was a convert, obviously, right? Her real name is actually Ramla, Ramla. And uh, she becomes Ummu Habiba because she has a child with that name. Her father is the famous, initially notorious Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan, who's, that's his title. His real name is Sakhr. Sakhr means a boulder, right? Ibn Harb, the son of war. They would actually give these frightening, dramatic names to people because, you know, it was a warring factions. Uh, you know, environment at that time, and if you had that kind of name, you already st struck fear in your, you know, in your, in your in your enemy. So his name was Abu Sufyan Sakhr, son of Harb ibn Umayyah, ibn Abd Shams. So Umayyah, that's why they called the Banu Umayyah, the children of Umayyah. That whole family becomes known as Banu Umayyah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin Amma ba'd Qala Allahu tabaraka wa ta'ala fi al-Qur'an al-Majid wa al-Furqan al-Hamid Ya nisa al-Nabiyyi lastunnaka ahadim minal nisa In ittaqaytunna fala tahda'na bil-qawl Sadaqallahu al-Azim What we're going to discuss is the biographies of the famous women around the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then later on I think it's really important because humans learn from role models whether you read about them uh, and whether you can see them I mean if you can see a role model then that's the best because humans love to emulate and copy when you can't see somebody, when you can't be with somebody, and the best of the people were around the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and probably among all of the or among all the people around the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, all the Sahaba, one hundred twenty-four thousand uh, or more, probably the most knowledgeable about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam were those that were in his household. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave us a number of examples and facilitated that through a number of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, the mothers of the believers, the special title given to the blessed wives of the Prophet So while we should actually be starting with Khadija radiallahu anha, I actually want to start off with Ummu Habiba radiallahu anha. I want to speak about her life and see what we can learn from there, what was so special about her. Because having been in the household of the Prophet ﷺ and married to the Prophet ﷺ, some of that had to rub off. I mean, she was initially the daughter of one of the greatest enemies of Islam. For her to then go into literally the enemy's house, the enemy of her father and her mother, or uh, the wife of Abu Sufyan, and then to, subhanAllah, you know, become what she did, that is an amazing idea. That's against all odds. That is taking on something against all odds and against the pressures of your family, which is something that people are really, really, really struggling with nowadays. One of the biggest forces in anybody's life at any time is going to be their culture. Because everybody around them, those that are closest to them, those who matter for them, right? those who do things for them, those they rely on, they do things in a certain way. And if that way is wrong, if that way is blameworthy, if that way has shortcomings, then it's very difficult for somebody to go out of the way. 
If somebody wants to be different and they're willing to be different from before, then they find it easy. But most people aren't, don't have that kind of courage. The majority of people are followers. They're just conformists. Majority of people just conform to what's going on around them, even if they hate it, even if they disagree with it. They just somehow satisfy themselves. They just somehow convince themselves. They just somehow ignore it. And then they just carry on and they carry on. And then they die that way. And it's really sad because they've just wasted a huge amount of potential. And this has been a struggle throughout. So generally, the person who wants to go against the grain, they find it easy to be, become non-conformist. But then the problem with them is that they might just go the completely wrong way. So they need to go the right way. It's just easier for them. Everybody should think about this. And one way to do this is to obviously find other people that think the same way and then you can support one another. How difficult it is to wear hijab in a family that has never worn hijab and think that it's for somebody else. It's not for them, it's below them. It's inferiority for them, right? It's an inferior act for them and it's inferior anyway, right? It's so difficult, it is so difficult. But subhanAllah, this is where we get our role models from that went against some of the most difficult things, most of the challenges that are faced by our Muslim brothers and sisters today are not kufr challenges. Yes, for some of our converts, that's the big challenge. They've already taken the major step of coming out of the kufr and disbelief. For us Muslims, meaning who are born as Muslims, the challenge is never as great as kufr, but sometimes it seems like it's actually worse, that it might be easier to convert you know, to Islam than to become conforming to the sunnah of the Messenger That's why some converts are really, really surprised that Muslims can't take that smaller step and they've taken a bigger step from one faith to the next. And these people just, you know, they've literally gone from one house or one building to another and these guys can't just move from one room to another, from a bad room to a good room of the same building, right? They've literally migrated, you can say, from one country to the other and Muslims can't literally move from one uh, one little area to another area, right? I know it's difficult, but it, we can learn a lot from converts and what they've, what they've achieved and the sacrifices they've made. And they put us to shame sometimes, subhanAllah. So Ummu Habiba was a convert, obviously, right? Her real name is actually Ramla, Ramla. Right? And uh, she becomes Ummu Habiba because she has a child with that name. Her father is the famous, initially notorious, Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan, who's, that's his title. His real name is Sakhr. Sakhr means a boulder, right? Ibn Harb, the son of war. They would actually give these frightening, dramatic names to people because, you know, it was a warring factions, uh, you know, environment at that time. And if you had that kind of name, you already struck fear in your you know in your in your in your enemy so his name was abu sufyan sakhar son of harb ibn umayya ibn abdi shams so umayya that's why they called the banu umayya the children of umayya that whole family becomes known as banu umayya right her her mother her mother was safiya bint abu al-as uh, that was her mother's name and interestingly her mother was the 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 auntie 
the father, sister, paternal aunt of Uthman radiallahu anhu. Uthman is the same family, Banu Umayyah, in that same family. So she is the auntie of Uthman radiallahu anhu. So basically, you can say Ummu Habiba, Ramla, was a cousin sister of Uthman radiallahu anhu. She's born about 17 years before the Prophet hits 40 years of age. So that means when he's about, what, 23 or something? So before he becomes a prophet, about 17 years. And she gets married initially to a guy called Ubaidullah ibn Jahash. Ubaidullah ibn Jahash. Right? Uh, Ubaidullah is the, 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 the little worshipper, the young worshipper. Abdullah means the servant of Allah. Ubaid means the, the little servant. It's just the diminutive to show a small... Uh, so Juwadiyah just means a little girl Jariyah means a girl But Juwadiyah means like a proper little girl right? That's, that's what Juwadiyah means And anything that sounds like that means little Alright So that's who she got married to initially And she, they both became Muslim together They both became Muslim together And they were mashallah part of that first Group of people that migrated to Abyssinia Which had that wonderful kind, generous, dignified and honourable Christian king. That's where they moved to flee the persecution uh, that was happening in, Medina, uh, in Makkah Mukarramah at the time. So that's where they went. And I don't know, he, uh, this husband of hers got a bit excited with the Christianity down there, right? And the leader of uh, the, the, the king of Abyssinia, the Negus, he ends up becoming Muslim later on. This guy ends up becoming Christian. And he starts drinking and everything. And now, when your husband, in, in many traditional homes, and in those days it was tradition, Wallahu alam, you know, if the husband does something, the wife generally gets compelled to do the same thing. And he just follows suit in most cases. But this shows her leadership. This shows her firm commitment herself. Now, remember, her father's an enemy. He's not become Muslim yet. He's against Islam. She tells him that, look, we escaped all of that tries to convince him, but he starts drinking and enjoying himself, right? And she leaves him, right? She says, no, I'm not going to change. I'm going to remain a Muslim. And then eventually he dies. So he, he dies. And what's really interesting is that she finishes her idda, her waiting period. And the Prophet wasallam has probably, has definitely found out about this. So he sends Amr ibn Umayyah al-Damuri. Right. To Najashi, to this Christian king, he sends him there to Abyssinia and says, I'm proposing to Ummu Habiba. Right. And interestingly, Ummu Habiba has seen a dream as well, in which he, she sees her husband in this bad state and tells him about it. No, wakes up the next morning and that's the day he becomes a Christian. And she tells, look, I've seen a bad dream about you, but he didn't want to listen. You know, once you get this idea of just freedom, uh, this you know, false sense of freedom, right? Then that means it becomes very difficult for you to go and conform again. You know, it's very difficult. So anyway, he dies and then she gets this proposal. Now look at this, right? This is really interesting. And this is something that I think I've not seen happening nowadays. Najashi has, a, has a, one of his female servants called Abraha. Okay, I know Abraha, there was a man called Abraha, but her name is Abraha. Right? I don't know if that's Arabicized or if that's the original Abyssinian way of saying it. 
So he sends her to Ummu Habiba in her house after she's finished her idda that we've just received a proposal from the Prophet because the Prophet is there back in uh, you know in Arabia in the mainland and he's not in Abyssinia that he wants us to marry you to him you need to and we learn something from it. he says uh, the the negus tells her that you need to appoint a representative so can you, that's where we get this idea. So while a woman is, if she did do the nikah on her own and represented herself, it would be valid, but it's generally a sunnah to have a male represent her. Okay? So she designates Khalid ibn Sa'id al-Umawi as her, um, as her representative. Now, she is so excited by this proposal that immediately when that when Abraha, that when, when that um, female servant of Najashi comes to give it to her, she has two bracelets and two rings made of gold. She just takes that off and gives it to her. This is really interesting. It looks like this was the tradition of the time because when Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, who somehow got left, left behind from the expedition of Tabuk, and then the Prophet didn't speak to him and Hilal ibn Umayyah, uh, uh, and another Sahabi for 40 to 50 days uh, and then eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, revealed that they've been forgiven the person who came to give him that glad tiding he took off his shirt Kaab took off his shirt and gave it to him and he says this is your gift so it looks like there was this there was this tradition in those days that when somebody brought you good information exciting information you would actually give them a gift so she gives her those things as a gift. Um, then what happens is that Najashi brings all the Muslims together. Remember Ja'far radiallahu anhu, the cousin of the Prophet is one of the prominent leaders. Brings them all together and they have a feast. Now this is really, really interesting because remember, there's, this, is, this can't be a walima yet, technically. Because the Prophet hasn't consummated his marriage. They've not met one another yet. So... This might give us an idea that if somebody wants to feed in happiness for their marriage being done, right, even before the walima, there is a backing for it, as many traditions do. But this is just something that happened. I mean, some people might say, well, this is what Najashi decided to do on his own behalf. And whether he was a Muslim at that time or not, we don't know. According to some traditions, yes, he had become a Muslim by now. Or at least when he then sent Ummu Habiba because she was alone now and she was married to Prophet Sallallahu who was in, uh, in Arabia, in the mainland. He then sent, with some trustworthy people, he sent her to the Prophet Sallallahu Now, before that though, when the mahr amount was given, which was, there's different opinion whether it was 400 dinars or was it 400 dirhams, there's a difference of opinion. When that was given to Ummu Habiba, she called this Abraha and said, that day I actually wanted to give you some money, but all I had, I didn't have any cash at that time, I only had the jewellery, so that's why I gave that to you. Here, take some of this money now as well. And Abraha, she'd, been, she'd spoken to Najashi about this, and Najashi said, look, you can't take anything from her. She said, no, I can't take anything from you, I'm giving this back to you as well. All right. So that's really interesting. Anyway, she, she comes... And this was in the sixth or seventh year of Hijrah. Sixth or seventh year of Hijrah, she comes to Medina Munawwara. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ is in Khaybar at that time. 
and she was approximately 36 or 37 years old when this happened. So now, mashallah, she enters the household of the Prophet Her brother is somebody who later becomes a Muslim as well and becomes one of the greatest leaders that we have, which is Muawiyah who becomes a Khalif after Hassan radiallahu anhu, after Ali radiallahu anhu passed away and Hassan radiallahu anhu uh, transferred the Khilafah over to him and then mashallah there's stability for the next 10 or so years again and uh, he was a master, uh, you know, uh, tactician, politician and uh, mashallah he brought a lot of stability and a lot of expansion, you know, to the Muslim lands as well. That was her brother, right? So eventually Ummu Habiba radiallahu anha passes away in 44 Hijri, right, which is you know, many years after the Prophet Sallallahu she had she had remained and then she gets buried in Medina Munawwara, right? She was about 73 years at the time. Before she passes away, and again, this is something else that we learn from this. Before she passes away, she approaches Aisha radiallahu anha and Umm Salama radiallahu anha. These are two of her co-wives. Now I'm not sure if that's uh, it, these two are mentioned because they were the only ones around at that time or maybe they're the ones that she may have had more issues with because uh, as co-wives, you know, they, there's some really interesting, amusing in fact. And, you know, I just wonder what the, how the Prophet managed it, right? Um, uh, little issues between them. So she went to them to ask for forgiveness. Aisha radiallahu anha says that I have forgiven you. And said that may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive as well. And mashallah, uh, she said that I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you've made me happy by doing this, giving me your blessings basically. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make you happy as well. So that just shows you the, the forgiveness aspect. You know, uh, we learn about that. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can actually give us the ability to seek forgiveness before we die, that's amazing. Rather than having to die suddenly, with these leftover balances and madhalim as mentioned in the hadith. Recently a friend of mine, his father was passing away, he was on life support and then there was this discussion about whether they should take the life support off uh, or take him off the machine or not. So I said, look, if he's already done all of his tawbah and he's paid his debts and he's asked every forgiveness, then it's fine. Um, otherwise, because he was in a lot of pain, right? He was in a lot of pain. So the idea was, should we just leave it to Allah or should we just keep him on there, uh, sedated or whatever? I said, look, it's a good idea if you can just bring him back to at least seek forgiveness. And mashallah, you know, because that's amazing. If we can seek forgiveness and clear everything up, that's amazing. So we learned that from there as well. She was, according to the hadith in Sahih Muslim, you know, the biographers have looked at her, have, have uh, mentioned this, that once uh, Abu Sufyan said about his daughter that, that I have one of the best of the Arab women and one of the most uh, beautiful of the Arab women, Ummu Habiba. So that tells us that she was actually a very, very uh, beautiful woman. But there's a lot more to, uh, you know, along with her physical beauty, mashallah, she had a number of other things. She, there's about 65, 65 uh, hadiths, narrations from her you'll find in scattered in the books of hadith. That's not bad actually, 65 is a good number. That's a lot more than some of the male sahaba, right? And a number of sahaba have actually, uh, uh, and, and tabi'een have actually related from her. So she transmitted these hadith to them. For example, 
عبد الله بن عتبة أبو سفيان بن سعيد الثقفي سالم بن سوار أبو الجراه and Safiya bint Shayba, Zainab bint Umm Salama, Urwa ibn Zubair, Abu Salih al-Samman, Shahr ibn Hawshab. So both male and female, you know, had transmitted from her. In terms of her akhlaq and her character, she was known to be very, very particular, very, very strong in her faith, right? She wasn't a person that would, you can say, take looking for easy ways. She was very particular. Right? She was very strong on her faith. I mean, she had to be to leave the home of an enemy right, and her father and, and come to Islam. And then, you know, obviously you can tell what that was. On one occasion, what happened is that after the conquest of Makkah, right, Abu Sufyan is not a Muslim yet, but he's been, he's been subdued. Right? He's been, uh, he's basically, all the venom has been taken out because he's seen that the Prophet ﷺ, you know, has just walked into Makkah Mukarramah. So he's at mercy now. All right, so she, he comes to Medina Munawwara to visit the Prophet ﷺ to negotiate or to talk to him or to plead with him, and obviously he goes to his daughter's house. Like that's his daughter, so he goes to his daughter's house, and you know, in those days you had they had small rooms, right? The Prophet ﷺ had small rooms for each one of uh, one of his wives, and the only place to sit down they didn't have chairs, right? So the only place to sit down was actually, you can say the the kind of crude mattress of the Prophet ﷺ that he would sleep on, right, when he would be with her. So what she did was, that was the only place to sit, but what she did, I mean, subhanAllah, I just don't know how you do this, but she went and rolled it up so that her father wouldn't sit on there. And of course, he gets angry, right, and he says, he got very angry on her, he says, why can't I sit on her? He says, because you're still mushrik and mushrik are impure. You're polytheist and polytheist are impure. I'm not sure if she was referring, she must have been referring to the verse in the Quran, إِنَّمَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ najas, Right, although that means their aqidah is najas, they don't physically have to be impure. But she said, no, you can't sit on the blessed bed of the Prophet He probably just shook his head and then he said, after me, you've just been messed up. Right, he just can't understand her. But I guess he must have really respected her afterwards when he finally became Muslim. Right. So she was very particular about you know, following the Prophet sunnah. Once she told somebody off that, uh, actually she didn't tell him, the person had eaten something that had been cooked with fire. So not, not uh, food that had just been prepared without fire, but something that had been cooked. And initially in Islam there was this, there's some hadith which indicate this, and this might have been a ruling in the beginning, but it's no longer a ruling that Anything that has been cooked on fire would break your wudu if you touched, if you ate it. So that means go and repeat your wudu. But that's, there's many hadiths which show that that might have been something in the early phases and no longer the case. But she made him do wudu at that time, right? So that was at that point. Now when Abu Sufyan died, that's her father who's dying. It mentions that she wasn't one to put perfume and fragrance and everything on. But she just to follow the sunnah. Right, what she did was, it doesn't say exactly when she did, did it. So she put some fragrance on and she said that the Prophet ﷺ has said that we're not allowed to mourn for more than three days. So she was just making a point that, look, I'm not mourning anymore. Right? Just to make that point that I'm not mourning anymore, I want to follow this sunnah and I want to tell other people about it. Except, she says, 
for a woman whose husband has died. She's the only one who's allowed to be in that state without fragrance and all of that kind of stuff for four months and ten days. That doesn't mean that after that you have to wear it, but it says that there's a prohibition to wear it during that time. Okay. Once she heard the hadith of the Prophet which said that anybody who's regular on 12 rak'ahs in the day, right, um, of the nafil sunnah prayer, right, they get a house in paradise. So then she says that, فَمَا بَرِحْتُ أُصَلِّيهِنَّ بَعْدُ Like, I've never stopped praying them since that day. I've never stopped praying. So uh, the 12 extra, basically what they are, the way we count them is two rakats before Fajr, the sunnahs, four rakats before Dhuhr, which we generally do as sunnah mu'akadah anyway, and that's why we call them sunnah mu'akadah, that's six, just count with me. Two rakats after Dhuhr, that is one, that's eight. Two rakats after Maghrib, ten, and two rakats after Isha, that's twelve. So that's why we've considered them to be the strongly emphasized sunnahs. And alhamdulillah, I think most of us here do those anyway. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a house in Jannah as well. She was uh, a very, very, you can say, soft-hearted and very focused on Allah. Despite all odds. Now, this is a really interesting story that's mentioned about her. Once she said to the Prophet ﷺ that, why don't you marry my sister as well? Right? So, Prophet ﷺ is shocked because most of the wives, they wouldn't like it, even though there were so many wives already, they wouldn't like it. Like Aisha, when she found her husband and married Juwairiyah, she actually didn't like it. And for other, uh, other wives, when he married them as well, because everybody wanted exclusive exclusivity. Right, so but here she is saying that why don't you marry my sister? So the Prophet said that is that something you'd like? He was just surprised, like is that something you would like? So this is her response. She said that yes, because I'm not your exclusive wife anyway. Like it's not just me alone anyway. You've got others, and I would like it that she also gets the honor of of marrying you. But um, it's not allowed to marry two sisters uh, at once, uh, two sisters at once. Just goes to show her clean-heartedness in that regard. And there's a number of other stories uh, and things related about her. Uh, but I think this goes to give us an understanding of the kind of women the Prophet ﷺ chose and how they become our role models and the kind of strength that's, gi that, that's given uh, of, of what kind of Akhlaq and character that they had and what we can learn from that. The strength of her iman that despite her husband going away and becoming something else, she stays strong. And like with what the Prophet ﷺ has promised, what Allah has promised is that with every difficulty comes ease. And we have this in our tradition that anytime you bear patiently a severity in your life, Allah tends to give you something greater afterwards as a reward for that. And here there's an example of that as she gets eventually married to the Prophet ﷺ. After going through all of that difficulty, she gets something much, much better. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to benefit from these people and may Allah allow us to meet with these people in the hereafter. May Allah elevate them. They've made their way, but may Allah allow us to follow in their glorious footsteps. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously. 
to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules. And at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam, and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.